Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 13, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 20, New Testament, the sources part 4, the Arabic infancy gospel. In this apocryphal gospel, the baby Jesus speaks in the cradle. When he was lying in his cradle, he said to Mary, his mother, I am Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos, whom thou hast brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my Father has sent me for the salvation of the world. Now, like I said, that's not the Quran. That is an apocryphal gospel. But it's actually quite similar to what we'll see in the Quran a little later. And the source is similar, too in time and place and language. It's around the year 500 to 600. And quite possibly, the source region was Arabia. So here we are, at the last of the four apocryphal gospels that we'll be going over here. The Arabic infancy gospel which is also known as the Syriac Infancy Gospel. This one's last for a reason, mainly because it's chronologically last, and it contains stories and elements from the previous three that we have just gone over. So it's also extremely relevant, given the name here. It's called the Arabic Infancy Gospel. And also there's the age in which it was written that I mentioned, perhaps a century before Muhammad or even closer to his time than that. So the Arabic infancy gospel is also called the Syriac infancy gospel, which is kind of fitting given history because I don't, for those who are familiar with this region, is there anything Syriac that has not been overshadowed by Arabic? Like, ever. Um, even if you know any Syriac speakers like I have in the past, they don't just speak Syriac and English. Their first language, or maybe the first of their simultaneous first two languages, was Arabic. Uh, Syriac is just, in the modern world, thoroughly intertwined with Arabic. Anyway, we'll just call it the Arabic infancy gospel. It was probably available in both languages at the time of Muhammad, and the Arabic may have been either oral or maybe it was in the standard written version of the time, though it's the uh, confusing and very, how do I put this nicely, the very imprecise version of the Arabic written language that existed prior to Islam. So was it in Arabia? The source of this gospel, whoever wrote it, likely was not Arabic, but it did make its way into the language at some point. And it's something that may have been circulated among the Syriac community, probably as it made its way south, you know, from the northern places where the most lucrative caravans often went. So, even though there is still very much we do not know about this gospel, particularly as it relates to the time of Muhammad, it's not surprising that this apocryphal gospel gets tied up often with the Quran. Uh, 
mainly because of the people and the language and the time and the similar region and the content being discussed. And when it comes to this gospel, there are many interesting additions to the apocryphal gospels that we have gone over so far. Um, Of course, the one that stands out here, as I mentioned at the beginning, is Jesus speaking from the cradle. So keep that in mind. That's the important part. And we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, But first, just for those who are curious, and as we did with the others, and especially so you don't have to just read this whole thing, let me give you a short summary of the Arabic infancy gospel. It starts with its most well-known claim, Jesus speaking in the cradle. And then it goes into the nativity story. Now, this is the cave version of the nativity story. An old woman comes to the cave with them, and she is cured by the baby Jesus of some serious disease just because she put her hands on him. And then the Magi come, and the gospel gives Zoroaster the credit for predicting. um, So here you have Zoroastrianism being melded into the Judeo-Christian fabric here. The Zor- uh, they say, hey, Zoroaster, thank you, thank you for predicting this. This is why we came. And perhaps, not coincidentally, some fire worshipers came to worship the child, but also worship a fire that they made. Which is, for those who don't know Zoroastrianism, fire is just a really big thing in it. So Mary gave them some of Jesus's swaddling clothes, and these fire worshipers, they threw the clothes into the fire. Now, this was a custom, apparently. It wasn't a rude thing. But the clothes would not burn. And then we have the Holy Family fleeing to Egypt, where they eventually come across a crazy naked person. This actually happens a few times. Now, in this case, Mary and Joseph perform a sort of joint exorcism. Mary uses the clothes of Jesus to expel the demons, which flee out of his mouth. Oh, and also the idol that these people worshipped, it collapsed. So everyone knew, hey, there's a new power in town. But now, thinking the people may turn on them for some reason, the Holy Family flees again. And the family approached a, what I guess you could call a robbery in progress. Some bandits had tied people up and were taking their things. But the thieves fled at the mere approach of the Holy Family. So this family then comes across another crazy naked person. This time it's a woman. And Mary needed to only look at her to cure her of her demon. And then the uh, Mary-Jesus sort of tag team combo here performs another exorcism. They cure a leper a woman who joins them on their journey. And then they encounter a princess, and they cure her son's leprosy. And then they cure a man who was unable to enjoy his wife. (laughs) I believe that's referring to impotence. So they cure him, and then they go on. They come across a man who was turned into a mule for some reason, and they cured him. So he changed back into a young man. And then they also encounter the two thieves, not just any two thieves, the two thieves who will later be crucified with Jesus. And then they end up in Egypt and they stay there for three years. 
So there's more healings. They go to Nazareth and Bethlehem. Mary's mere presence saves an infant from burning. His rival's mother had thrown him into an oven, apparently. And God punishes that woman, making her fall down a well to her death. There's more healings and exorcisms. Uh, then they're shielding a child from Satan in the form of a dragon. And then we don't jump to uh, Jesus as a seven-year-old. And he makes the clay animals come to life. I believe we've gone over that. Jesus changes the color of various pieces of clothing. And he helps Joseph with his carpentry. Now, apparently, this gospel says Joseph was actually a really, really lousy carpenter. So Joseph, despite being a lousy carpenter, he gets a two-year contract to build a throne for the king in Jerusalem. And of course, he's a lousy carpenter, so he messes it up. But Jesus, being very kind, he fixes it for him. Then Jesus forces a serpent to suck the poison out of a boy that it had bitten, and he brings another boy back to life. Jesus makes the clay birds. We went over that before. A bad-tempered boy Jesus, <laughs> interesting, he actually kills a couple of young boys. And Jesus is sent to learn how to read, but he already knows more than the teachers. That's something to keep in mind. I shouldn't have just glossed over that. A bad-tempered boy, a bad-tempered Jesus, you know, kills a couple of boys. The reason that's important is it kind of gives an explanation for, as you'll see, the reason for the gap between ages 12 to 30 in the Bible. Basically, Jesus was out of control, and they had to teach him how to control his powers. All right, so now 12 years old. Jesus wows religious scholars and scientists and philosophers. And then after this point, it is decided that Jesus will hide his powers until he is 30. The end. So this is a pretty typical apocryphal gospel. You know, it's, it's a late one, but many of the familiar signs are there. It's long and creative on story. It's short on moral and theological messaging, and it does well to backfill new details into a previously known story. For example, like I said before, this answers the question. This is kind of the big question I think it's trying to fill. Why did Jesus basically disappear from ages 12 to 30? Well, as shown in all these things, he was drawing way too much attention, and they decided to keep his powers a secret. So by the time he started his ministry, everyone forgot about him. I suppose that it's a good attempt, but that's their story and they're sticking to it. Another odd thing, though, is when you read this entire story, the way it starts, you're really expecting the whole talking from the cradle thing to come up again, but it doesn't. It's just at the beginning. So really, if you're just talking about the Quran and this gospel, you could read the first paragraph and just be done with it. So it was fun talking about the whole story. But if we're talking about how this relates to the Quran, we have to go back to the beginning. That first paragraph that says, We find what follows in the book of Joseph the high priest 
who lived in the time of Christ, some that he is Caiaphas. He has said that Jesus spoke, and indeed, when he was lying in his cradle, said to his mother, I am Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos, whom thou hast brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my Father has sent me for the salvation of the world. And then, the only other part where this is in here, also at the beginning, he has said that Jesus spoke, and indeed, when he was lying in his cradle, said to Mary his mother, I am Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos, whom thou hast brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my Father has sent me for the salvation of the world. So it's basically the same thing, just in two different places. You know, it's, it's the preamble to say, hey, this is, this is the most important thing that's happening here, and then they mention it a little further down. All right, so this whole speaking in the cradle thing, where does that come up in the Quran? It's in the Surah of Mary. It's Surah 19, 30 to 33. He spake, Lo, I am the slave of Allah. He hath given me scripture and hath appointed me a prophet and hath made me blessed wheresoever I may be and hath enjoined upon me prayer and almsgiving so long as I remain alive and hath made me dutiful toward her who bore me and hath not made me arrogant, unblessed. Peace on me the day I was born and the day I die and the day I shall be raised alive. Now, did you notice the difference there? I mean, first off, of course, the beginning is strikingly similar, just with some more Islamic-sounding words with it. But the difference I'm talking about is, it doesn't say Jesus, Son of God, the Logos. It says, Jesus, the Slave of Allah. It's common Arabic, common Islamic language. The simple word construction for the word slaves, the abd, A-B-D, that is a part of so many Muslim names, in this case, abd Allah, Abdullah, which makes sense. I mean, what Arab is going to have any conception of the logos? It's just such a Greek thing. You know, that's why the the infants the Arabic infancy gospel, ironically, probably originated in the Greek classic Greek world. You know, the Arabs weren't real heavy on a lot of these concepts. The logos is very Greek. I mean, it was six hundred years before Muhammad and at the time of, of Muhammad. Because the Greeks never made it that far south. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. But the similarity is striking there. The original has Jesus, son of God, for the salvation of the world. Those are replaced with more Islamic qualities and virtues. Slave of God, one who prays and gives charity. A humble servant of God who is looking forward to eternal life. So it's similar. But really, how similar is it? At best, I can say somewhat, possibly. One of the problems here is I can't give you a super definitive answer with any honesty, uh, because 
for one thing, I have not seen the document in Arabic, if it even exists. For one thing, I don't have access to the stunning resources of the university library like I once did. And even then, I think it would be pretty hard to find. I can't find it online. And even if I did, the only surviving manuscripts are from like 600 years um, after Muhammad, apparently. Like the earliest Arabic transcripts of this are like year 1200, 1300, you know. So keep guessing, I suppose. It's more likely to be related than not, but that's hardly proof. Now, if Muhammad ever heard this, it was almost surely in or- oral form, you know, probably one of his many trips north to Syria. But a Muslim could just as easily say, how do you know the Arabic infancy gospel didn't get that from the Quran? And it'd be a fair point. But like I mentioned earlier, this is a particularly important part of the Islamic nativity story. Joseph is not in the picture. I think I went over this in previous episodes, maybe. Joseph doesn't exist. So a powerful child, Jesus, is a very appealing ideal because someone's got to protect Mary, right? So when thinking about Jesus's early days from an Islamic perspective, all you've got is a woman and her child. So who's going to protect Mary from this scandal of this child that just came from nowhere? Well, that would be Jesus himself. And even from a Christian perspective, I don't know exactly what made this gospel come to be, but my guess would be it was the natural desire to fill in some gaps that that the gospel doesn't address. And the stories about him helping an incompetent Joseph with his carpentry are just particularly entertaining. I mean, seriously, when you read it, it almost looks like it was written to make somebody laugh in the middle of this serious document. But from a theological point of view, the real meat, you know, the heart of religious ideas they just aren't really there in this document. And perhaps that's why the Quran features so little from it, you know, or if it was the other way around. You know, theologically speaking, there's just not a whole lot there, even though there's all these entertaining stories. Whereas the Quran is basically the direct inverse of the Arabic infancy gospel. The Quran is short on story and long on teaching. You know, from a Quranic perspective, unless a story can be used to make a point, really, what good is it? And there's just not a whole lot for a preacher to work with in the Arabic infancy gospel. But not surprisingly, the largest point, in some ways the only point, taken from this in the Quran is the talking infant Jesus, which like I said, is so important to the Islamic conception of Jesus. Uh, the Quran even mentions this again, uh, Surah 3, verses 45 to 46. And remember when the angel said, O Mary, 
Allah gives you glad tidings of a word from him, whose name is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, illustrious in the world and the hereafter, and one of those brought near unto Allah. He will speak unto mankind in his cradle and in his manhood, and he is of the righteous. So again, Jesus and Mary alone. Joseph is not needed. Jesus is enough. Those are the two people who are special in this whole thing. So you have God's most extraordinary prophet and the son of history's most extraordinary woman, Mary and Jesus. So really, I could see how this idea would be appealing. You know, let's just say that if the Quran did draw from the Arabic infancy gospel, it does make sense. You know, here's this person so extraordinary, he could protect his mother from the beginning. And he could let people know just how special he was, even from the cradle. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.